A stu stu Studio D production. Talking about waiting, waiting for, for Guffman. Guffman. <laughs> but you are the Selfish only one you. who's seen no, it. Oh, well, have you seen it? Yes, we've Has just mom seen it. No. Okay, so the two of you, guys you are, are the only two who've seen it. it. Wait, do you guys know who Christopher Guest is? No. no. He played the six-fingered man in Princess Bride number oh. one. Oh. Okay. Number two. <laughs> like, oh, Count Rugen. Yeah. Oh, number okay. two, he um, had the whole series of those, like, mockumentary yes. movies. There was, like, the dog show one. Oh. 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 What was the yeah. dog show one? I can't remember Best the name Best in now. show. Best in show. Yes. And then... The also, the Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah. So, Waiting for Guffman is his one about community theater. We all <gasps> would love it. Yeah. I mean, oh I do love it. God. It's so good. Can we just Okay, have... movie night at my house. Okay, Can we absolutely. watch several of those? Yes. Can we also watch Art School Confidential? Is because believe it or one... not, it's a true crime movie. The one that has Ooh. Jane Lynch. Mm. Did you remember? Okay. Oh, A Mighty, Mighty Wind. Wind. Mighty is that one of them? I because I love that movie. Yes. He did that one? Yes. Yes. Okay. I love that movie. Movie night at my house. Yes. Sometime. I just in bought the future. a Mighty Wind, Wind on DVD. You did. In you, 2019, I, I bought yes, a Mighty Wind, Wind on DVD. The Mighty Wind, and you've never yeah. seen Waiting for Guffman. I'm sorry. No. Okay. Are we going to travesty? Okay. Are we going to have a podcast? So uh, I guess we're getting this thing started. So my name is Salem, and I'm Hannah, and we're effed up family story time the podcast <laughs> that was cute so cute <laughs> so with us today um it's just a few members of our family we have bell hey guys and we have kelly hi and we have jess hello so a little bit about our podcast let's see um we are interested in let's see let's go around what are we interested in we're interested in all things dark murder Mystery. Fucking weird. <laughs> Unexplained. Anything, Belle? Belle's interesting. Aliens. <laughs> and all that shit that people don't want to talk about, right? The things that might make you afraid, the things that might make you mad. Things, the things that go that... bump in the night. Yeah. So the spooky and the ooky. And, and the, the little bit kooky. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. A little kooky. A little kooky. And we might also be interested in some ghosts and godly ghouls as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't get me to say it. I won't do it. <laughs> so um, so our intent today is to read you a story, a story that is true, mostly. Um, <laughs> a story that is dark, that is mysterious, that is to a certain extent unexplained. Gruesome, sad. And on that note, what you drinking, Hannah? I don't know. What are you drinking, Jess? Well, I'd like to uh, welcome everybody to our fucked up drink corner. As you will soon discover, as we record each podcast, we will all be drinking a special drink. And this drink is something that we will have created. That Jess now, will have created. Well, now, not only does our family like the weird and spooky and kooky, we also enjoy a good trip to the local Renaissance Festival. Woo! And for our first episode, Who's we'd that? like to pay homage <laughs> to the drink that we discovered there that inspired our desire to create our own drinks. Now, this drink's pretty easy to make. All you need are some Killian's Irish Red Beer, 
Angry Orchard, the original flavor, not all the new flavors they've come out with. You pour half your glass full of Killian's and the rest full of Angry Orchard, and you've got yourself a Dragon Slayer. It's a perfect drink to share because then you have a half of a beer left and a half of a <laughs> cider left. So, Would you think your date is cheap if they made you share beers like that, though? I you can have half sweet. an Angry Orchard cheap? and nothing more. <laughs> or innovative. You still get a full beer out of it. Like, yeah. you're not cheap, yeah, like... Exactly. You're still paying for two like, beers. You get a quarter of a Killian's <laughs> and an eighth of an Angry Orchard, and the rest goes in my fridge for next time. If your date is doing that, run. <laughs> if your date Leave. offers you a dragon slayer, Take if he's it. not in full LARPer costume, he will be at some point in your relationship. So, I don't know. You, <laughs> gotta figure you may want to just that. marry him right then. I mean, that being said, I love a Renaissance festival. Oh, yeah. Huzzah! And some LARPing. I don't know. I, love I mean, LARPing I've never done too. it, but we should. You just <laughs> are, maybe. You, you just are you Jennifer Connolly in The Labyrinth. That's just you, Mom. Maybe. I could see that. Like, the time yeah. period's right, too. Yeah. It is. It's yeah. true. Yeah. No, for real. Like, just talking to yourself in your room, talking to the government. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Were you guys watching me? <laughs> He lived in a small house. (laughs) He did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What? The walls were thin. The walls were thin. It was a small house. Uh, Let's go ahead and move on to our story. Uh, This week, we are going to delve into um, the DeFeo murders and the Amityville haunting slash hoax. And uh, while researching this, I did discover it is a very deep subject, and we are only going to very lightly touch, well, maybe not very lightly, but we're going to lightly touch on some of the things because uh, it's just too much to put into one episode. Just a scratch. Scratch Just a a scratch of the surface. Um, Scratch and sniff. (laughs) (laughs) The scent is murder. (laughs) Okay. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was born September 26, 1951, to Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr. in Brooklyn, New York. He was the oldest of five children, his younger siblings being Don, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew. The DeFeo family moved to 112 Ocean Avenue in the Higher Inn neighborhood of Amityville in 1965. Believe it or not, that's also where the band Yellow Card lived. I loved Yellow Card. Ocean There's a Avenue? place on Ocean Avenue. <laughs> Where I used to sit and talk with you. We were both 16. But I mean, Amityville. Okay. Scary stuff. <laughs> Sorry. Very quickly after moving in, they hung a sign in the front yard that read High Hopes, and this was soon to be known as the name for the house in the, the big... Um, debacle that followed. (laughs) Ronald Sr. was a car salesman at a Buick dealership that was owned by his father-in-law. Outwardly, people generally saw Ronald as charming, but he was quick to temper. They often said that once his temper was triggered, there was nothing that could stop him, and he was a force to be reckoned with. At home, he was abusive, both verbally and physically. He often abused his wife, Louise, but his oldest child, Butch, took the brunt of Ronald's abuse. It is said that Butch suffered a head injury um, at his father's hands, and that's interesting because head wounds are often considered, um, what would you say, a sign of potential? Yeah, like a precursor to violent 
actions. Yeah, there's four there's four traits that they look at. It's head injuries, bedwetting, arson, and animal abuse. And yeah. so did this have a you know a contribution to his committing the crimes? I don't know. But his brain was developing and he had head injuries and, he had and that stuff. Injury. Never mind the fact yeah. that he had abuse. Right, right. The trauma <laughs> itself abuse right. from his yeah. father. So Let's see. So Butch was a troubled child from an early age. He showed violent tendencies while he was very young. Because of his short and, quote, porky stature, Butch was bullied at school. He would fight with his his schoolmates, and he caused trouble for his teachers. He kind of had a, a reputation for being a troublemaker. Ronald Sr. encouraged Butch to stand up to the kids at school, but he wouldn't tolerate any back talk, talk or disobedience, you know, at home. He wasn't allowed to stand up to his father. He just had to take his shit, so... Um, he often came home beat up and bruised. He was once stabbed in the back by another kid during a fight. That's just kind of like... This is a little rough back then. Like, yeah. And it was like incidental when I read it. It was just like, oh, one time he was, he was stabbed in the back. Stabbed in the back. Whatever. Yeah. That just happens at school sometimes. Just happens. Especially in Brooklyn. As he got older, his behavior worsened. Altercations between Butch and his father increased, and they had frequent, quote, boxing matches. He was also becoming more violent with his friends. <laughs> there was one um, altercation when, on a hunting trip, he pulled a gun and threatened to kill one of his friends. So he's a great guy to hang out with. Mm-hmm. As time went on, Ronald Sr. began to recognize that Butch's irregular outbursts were more serious and different than his own anger and his own temper. Um, during, during an argument between Ronald, and, Ronald Sr. and Louise, Butch pointed a gun at his father and pulled the trigger, but the gun mysteriously didn't fire. Butch then slowly lowered the gun and walked out of the room, seemingly unfazed by the fact that he had almost murdered his father. Oh, snap. That being said, it wasn't until Butch seriously beat up his sister, Dawn, that his parents took action and sought psychiatric help. Unfortunately, Butch was resistant to the psychiatrist, displaying passive-aggressive behavior and refusing to believe that he even had a problem. One account states that one of Butch's therapists actually told his parents, your son will kill you someday. That's really scary. That'll be $150. Sure, $150? That's a cheap therapy. That was, you know, it was in the 70s, right? Maybe they accidentally took him to a psychic and thought it was therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Your son is going to kill you. Okay, anyway. Um, So eventually they stopped therapy because it wasn't working. Butch wouldn't cooperate, and they were getting nowhere. So instead, they decided to uh, shower Butch with presents, gifts, money. They even bought him a $14,000 speedboat because that works. You didn't buy me a speedboat when I quit therapy. (laughs) God damn it, Mom. Well... (laughs) I would quit therapy way more often if I could yeah. get a speedboat. I don't even know what Mental to say health to is that. one I mean, thing. You're welcome. Just say you um, owe me a speedboat. That's it. Uh, nope. Uh, so uh, Butch had developed an alcohol and drug habit at a very young age, and he ended up spending most of the money that his parents gave him on money, drugs, or money, on drugs. <laughs> I'll give alcohol. you this money for some money. Give me some money if I give you some. And guns. <laughs> He was also suspected of using his boat to run drugs. Uh, in his late teens, Butch's drug, drug use would escalate to heroin and LSD, and he eventually was expelled from school from his violent outburst. Still trying to help his son, 
When Butch turned 18, his father gave him a prestigious position at the Buick dealership. <laughs> Ooh. I know. I just want to say, we passed it a little bit, but okay, yeah. heroin and LSD are not comparable drugs. No, no, no. <laughs> They're not at all. But he was experimenting with heroin and LSD at the same time. I mean, I think it's suspected that before then he was probably smoking pot, maybe doing cocaine, but these are like mind-altering drugs. I think that was the point. Oh, oh okay. Maybe behavior-altering drugs. I don't know. I'm just reading what I read. Yeah. <laughs> So none of what the DeFeos gave their son was appreciated, and none of what they did changed a thing. Butch was increasingly displeased with his father and what he was being handed, so he devised a plan. Two weeks before the murders, Butch entrusted, was entrusted with a deposit for the dealership containing $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks. He was gone for two hours before rushing back into his work with a story of a robbery. According to Butch, he was held up at gunpoint while sitting at a red light. His father was immediately suspicious. While being questioned by the police, Butch gradually became more and more agitated. This led to suspicion on the officers' parts as well. And they began to question why it took two hours for Butch to return to the dealership. After all, if he had been robbed, wouldn't he rush back to work to tell everyone what had happened? Wouldn't he seek help? The more the police pressed Butch, the angrier and more violent he became. He began cursing at the officers and banging on the hood of a car. The interview was stopped, but Ronald Sr. was convinced his son was guilty from that point on. He was probably right. I think he might have been. I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. So the Friday before the murders, Butch was asked to come down to the police station to look at some mugshots. At first he agreed, but then at the last minute he canceled. When Ronald Sr. found out, he confronted his son, wanting to know why he wasn't cooperating with the police. Not suspicious at all. No, not at all. Ron Ronald was purported to have screamed at Butch, You have the devil on your back! <laughs> And then Butch <laughs> responded with, you fat prick, I'll kill you. That just reminds me of that part from Hot Rod where they're sitting at dinner and Frank, Frank hits Rod in the face and he stands up and screams, you're the devil. That's great. Have fun being married to Satan. I love it. That's great. I saw Hot Rod. It was exactly night, like so. that. <laughs> I love Hot Rod. <laughs> All right, so Wednesday, November 13th, 1974. Around 3 a.m., after tying up the family dog outside, Butch entered his parents' bedroom carrying his 35 caliber Marlin Martin Action rifle. He pointed the rifle at his father and fired two bullets. Ronald Sr., age 43, was shot twice in the lower back, one bullet going through the kidney and the other through the spine. Death was, was thought to be instantaneous because there appeared to have been no attempt to crawl out of bed. His mother, most likely startled awake by gunfire, was turning toward the door when Butch fired again. Louise, aged 42, had been shot twice, one bullet entering her back, exiting her chest, then re-entering and going through her breast. The other bullet damaged her right lung, diaphragm, and liver. Death appeared to have occurred quickly because there was no evidence of a struggle. 
Butch then walked into his little brother's room where he shot each of them while they lie in their beds. The two boys, Mark, age 12, and John Matthew, age 9, were shot once from an estimated distance of less than two feet away. John's spine was severed. Next, Butch went down the hall into the third bedroom on the second floor and shot his youngest sister. Allison, age 13, must have also been awakened by the noise and was turning toward the door when she was shot. The bullet entered through her cheek. There was powder burn on her eye, which suggests she was awake and staring down the barrel of the gun. Ew. Last, Butch went upstairs into the attic bedroom. There he shot Dawn, aged 18, in the back of the neck, behind the left ear, from less than three feet away. All of the bodies were positioned lying on their stomachs in bed. Then Butch showered, trimmed his beard, and dressed for work. He placed his bloody clothes and the rifle in a pillowcase. On his way to work, he dumped the rifle at the dock, then stuffed the pillowcase in a sewer. Once at work, Butch was business as usual. He made several calls home, making sure to be seen doing so, but he didn't seem concerned. He told everyone that he didn't have keys to his house, so he couldn't get in. When he asked where his father was, he said he didn't know. After a short time, using boredom as an excuse, Butch left work around noon. Before leaving, he called his girlfriend, Mindy Weiss, to tell her he'd left work and he would be at her place early. Mindy was 19, attractive and popular, and was a waitress at Longfellow's Bar. On the way, he passed a friend, Robert Kelsky, who was a known heroin addict. He recounts having a strange conversation with him, but admits that he was high at the time, and it may have been a drug conversation, drug-induced conversation, <laughs> a drug-affected conversation. Butch does recall, though, telling Kelsky that he had been trying to get in touch with his family, but he hadn't had any luck. Lucky for him, he recalls that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like he could, yeah. He reached Mindy's around 1.30 p.m. He told her that he'd been calling home all day with no answer, but there were cars in the driveway, which made it look like somebody should be home. He placed another call from her phone just to make his point. Still not seeming concerned, Butch took Mindy to the mall. From there, they went to see Patricia and Robert Geiger, where they bought $10 of heroin, and he shot up. About this incident, Butch is quoted saying, I was out of it and actually forgot about what had happened at my house. I sort of blacked out. That's, that's a great thing to just forget. Happened. How convenient. I mean, it's, <laughs> I know. But it's so interesting, the fact that he actually called the house so many times and like so far removed himself from the actual murders, it seems like that. I, maybe, I think he like believed it. Maybe I think that his, at one uh, point, as he was calling over and over again, that like he believed that he didn't do it, and he thought that they were just not okay. He, he was able to convince himself. His, yeah, or was it just convenience? Like I'm gonna make sure to put on a show and well, call in front of my girlfriend and call in front even of, like a lot of people will feign innocence and be like, oh, I tried to call them or whatever. But it's weird. Like, I don't think I've ever heard of a case where they called that frequently. Oh, he, that, I mean, that was one thing that was stated in every, like, everything that I read was that he made a point. I don't know if he was just going, like, overkill, calling, you mm -hmm. know, let's make sure everybody sees me calling so they think that I don't know what happened. I don't know, but maybe he started to believe it. Yeah, but it just feels also, like... But he was also a heroin addict. Yeah. And, and he made, like, the only thing he remembered from his conversation with his heroin friend was that he mentioned that he was, like, 
he tried to get a hold of his family and yeah. couldn't get a hold of him. Like the only That's thing true. he remembers, he made sure to call in front of his girlfriend. He made sure to call multiple times at work, and he mm-hmm. didn't know where his family was. I mean, maybe Making he sure did. That saw him call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe he did black out and not remember at some point. But I think most of his actions were like planned. Like he knew mm-hmm. what he was doing. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would think, too. But the world may never know. May never know. No, the world knows. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, at least I know. I may never I know. I believe I know. <laughs> anyway. So just after 6 p.m., Butch went into Henry's Bar in Amityville. Here he once again met Robert Kelsky, and this time he feigned concern over not being able to reach his family. Butch announced to the patrons in the bar that he was going to go home and break a window to get in because he needed to check on his family, and he was worried. Oh, I, uh, I know. Murdered my... I mean, uh, I'm worried about my family, <laughs> and I think I'm going to go check on them. They haven't what been was, answering their that? phone what? all day. What was that? Okay, okay. that sounds reasonable. Um... Shortly after leaving the bar, he returned to announce that his mother and father had been shot. A group of patrons jumped into Butch's car with Kelsky at the wheel, and they raced to high hopes. Once at the house, Kelsky went running into the house, up the stairs, and into the master bedroom. After he found the gruesome scene, he quickly backtracked downstairs to find Butch distraught. Of course. Of course. He's so distraught. (laughs) Another friend that had come along, Joe Yeswick, called the police. And soon, Officer Kenneth J. Graguski, sorry, (laughs) from the Amityville Village Police Department, was the first to arrive. He found Ronald and Louise first, and then he found the boys. So then he quickly came downstairs and radioed in that they had four bodies, something I'm sure was not often seen in this small town. Butch very quickly corrected him and said, no, I have two sisters also. So the officer went <laughs> back upstairs and found Allison and Dawn and radioed in. No, it is not four, but six. Well, good thing he was there to help out. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, you didn't check the whole house? I don't know. <laughs> the yeah, reason- it was just behind a closed it was just behind a closed like, door. I, think, I know. <laughs> I think the first body that you find, you open every door. <laughs> I think it's also was a very quiet neighborhood that didn't have things that happened like this, and maybe he was just kind of freaked out and like, okay, four bodies is enough. Or <laughs> I gotta call somebody. Or know. maybe this is all like a sexist thing of the times because it was the two girls <laughs> that were unfound, only the three boys and the one woman who was next to one of the guys. I bet that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. I'm sure. Yeah, I bet you're right. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> this version of the story, um, from the time that Butch claims he gets ready and goes to work to the time the bodies are discovered, stays pretty consistent. But everything before that changes about 100 times. Oh, you mean the actual murder the part? The actual <laughs> murder part. The actual when something happened part. So at first, the police didn't really suspect butch they because he cooperated so um at first they just worked with him and they were looking for clues but after the autopsy well this is kind of weird this doesn't necessarily implicate bush butch <laughs> doesn't implicate bush, bush did amityville bush. <laughs> oh snap <laughs> Anyone who's listening, we don't really believe that. Um, this is not a political <laughs> podcast. Not a political podcast. So anyway, um, 
Dr. Howard Adelman, who was the pathologist that did the autopsies, reported that in his opinion, based on the evidence, these murders appeared to be gangland style and that they would have involved three to four people to be able to pull it off. So, kind of interesting. But there are a lot of things that don't add up. <laughs> How did one man kill six people in their sleep without anybody waking up, running away, or fighting, struggling? Why was everybody still in their bed? Magic. Magic. Dang. And he did it in the, the approximate span of 15 minutes. So that means he would have had to go from one room to the next room to, you know, methodically. No time for fighting. And why did nobody report the gunshots? They live in this nice, quiet neighborhood. Well, nobody, how close were all the houses? They're not. They're pretty close. And it's a quiet neighborhood with affluent people. And the dog was tied up outside and supposedly barking his head off. It's, it's just interesting that nobody said anything. It's that... Um, bystander effect well and some people that's think a good explanation because of the rumored mafia ties between the family uh, or with the family some people conjecture that the neighbors didn't call because they thought it might be related to that and didn't want to be involved but nobody that's like also kind of bystander that's kind effect. of bystander effect all right so on to the the investigation so when first questioned, Butch immediately tried to direct the police's attention to the mafia. He told them that a man named Louise Fellini had a grudge against his family because of an altercation that the two had had. Butch had called Fellini a cocksucker. Yeah, cocksucker. Which in turn... <laughs> how is, that? Your, is that your Brooklyn accent, Mom? <laughs> That's just how I say cocksucker. Anyway, which in turn had created problems between Fellini and Butch's father. This may not have sounded far-fetched to the people that knew the family because it was rumored that Ronald Sr. and other family members were connected to the mafia. Ronald's great-uncle, Peter DeFeo, a.k.a. Philly Aquilino, was a gangster and associated with both the Luciani and Genovese crime families. Aquilino, Aquil, Aquilino eventually rose to the title of Capro regime, I may be saying that wrong, which is similar to the rank of captain, and it, they, essentially it means they report directly to the head boss. Second in command. Like, right. like Commander Riker. Like Commander Riker. Like Hannah today. It's my number two. My number one. Don't Please don't compare me to my, a man in the mafia. <laughs> no, she's comparing you to Commander, Commander Riker. Riker. What is number that? Number one. My commander. Did you just say, what is that? My number one. I'm unfamiliar yeah. also. Oh, yeah. We got some. We got We're going to come back yeah, to this. Yeah, we got please, some learning to do. <laughs> All right. Continue your story, <laughs> and I will school them later. Moving on. So Butch offered his complete cooperation to the police. He told them that he'd been up late watching a show called Castle Keep and had fallen asleep sometime around 2 a.m., he had woken up around 4 a.m., and on his way to his bed, he had noticed his brother Mark's wheelchair next to the bathroom door. Shortly afterward, he remembers hearing a toilet flush. Very important information. Butch tried, but he couldn't go back to sleep, so he got ready for work and left early. He related the rest of his day as previously stated up until the bodies were discovered. As the police continued to question him, Butch stuck to a story about Fellini. He told the officers that Fellini had lived with them for a while and that Fellini and Ronald Sr. had dug out a hiding place in the basement where they, hit, where they hid their gems and cash. 
Gems are so common. Because they're mobsters. Maybe if you're a mobster, gems Maybe are common. Doing all those jewelry heists. Jewels or yeah. a pirate. Or a pirate. <laughs> they could have just been pirates. <laughs> yeah, no mafia involved, just pirates. <laughs> Jessica's chiming in from the bed. What did she say? She said, you're welcome for the conversation piece. She was the one that said pirate. Oh, or a pirate. good job, Jess. Yeah, so she's chiming in. I just repeated yeah. it. I appreciate to it. make sure everyone could hear. The rest of us are useless. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's fueling this whole thing. Okay, sorry. Salem, continue. So questioning lasted until about 3 a.m., so Butch went to sleep on a cot in the back of the police department. When he had woke, when he, when awoken, the first words out of Butch's mouth were, have you found Fellini? But the police ignored him and placed him under arrest. You see, during Butch's questioning, at around 2.30 a.m., officers found two empty boxes in Butch's room, one for a 22 caliber Marlin rifle and one for a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. They soon discovered that the murder weapon was a 35 caliber weapon, and they knew they had their guy. I don't think he did it. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Not convinced. Not convinced. <laughs> Not enough evidence yet. <laughs> Butch acted surprised when he was arrested, arguing that he'd been cooperative the entire time. He even waived his right to an attorney, all the while proclaiming his innocence. But as the police continued to press Butch, they focused on the timeline. At first, Butch stuck to his story. No, he'd left the house at around 4 a.m. But the evidence pointed to the murders having been committed closer to 3 a.m., or even earlier. That placed Butch in the house at the time of the murders, making him a prime suspect. Eventually, Butch cracked under pressure and gave the police the true story. Quote, true story. This time the story was, Butch awoke to a gun in his face. Fellini was there with another man that he couldn't see very clearly, so he couldn't describe him. <laughs> or he was on heroin. <laughs> the two men then led Butch room to room as they killed his entire family. Butch then collected the evidence and disposed of it and helped the men to set up the crime scene. And why wouldn't they kill Butch? That's a good question. Also, how did he help this man set up the crime scene and murder his family and not be able to describe not what be he able looked like? Yeah, I agree. The police question why he would help dispose of evidence if he wasn't guilty of the crime. Finally, after they had been leaning on Butch for a while, I skipped something, so we're going to cut this out. Don't do I it. Didn't. I didn't, did I? Uh -uh. Don't edit anything. This is amazing. So eventually, <laughs> the police asked him, Fellini and this guy were never really there, were they? And Butch, being worn down, he replied, no, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It was so fast. And then he confessed to all six murders. Hooray. Hooray. Now there's speculation that his confession was coerced in one way or another. When Butch went before the judge for the first time, his injuries were so apparent that the judge ordered Butch be examined by a doctor. The findings were that Butch was covered from head to toe in bruises, that he suffered from a cut lip, and severe swelling to his face. He had not entered into the police department with those injuries, so it's not far-fetched to believe they came from the lengthy interrogation. 
Plus, these detectives that interviewed him had been known to be rough with their suspects, so it wasn't an unusual thing to see. Butch had also been visited in jail by his maternal grandfather and his uncle, Peter. Peter Defoe, DeFeo. Both had ties to the mafia. During the visit, Butch was allegedly told that if he didn't confess to all the murders, plus other things like signing away his father's estate and other legal issues, that they would kill him. If he didn't While comply. he was in police custody, they were threatening this? They, they went and visited him, and they threatened They're him. They're pretty powerful. And they forced him to sign papers, according, according to the things I read. I don't know. According to the things. According to the things I read. There will be citations in the episode description, so if people want to read these same things that I read, and they can question that author, not me. Because <laughs> I'm just getting it from I'm them. not questioning anyone. <laughs> no, not you. I just <clears throat> mean people in general. That's all. <laughs> and then Butch was also visited by the FBI because they knew that he had mafia ties and they wanted him to roll over on his family, which he refused to do. But they had um, a recording of his grandfather speaking to somebody. I don't know if it was De- Peter DeFeo or somebody else, but they had a recording of them saying that they were going to kill Butch, So, which is why they involved Butch in the investigation. But any number of these could have pushed him to confess potentially to something that he didn't do. Or so. to confess to something he did do. And, or to confess to something he did do. But maybe Absolutely. wouldn't have confessed to. Yeah, or maybe. Well, and then there's questions. So moving on, after he had been in prison, after he had confessed, Butch changed his story again and said that Dawn was the one, his sister Dawn was the one that had killed the family. Um, he has changed his story many times over the years, but he almost consistently says that Dawn was involved. Um, I think it, initially he said that that he that he wasn't there when the murders were committed, and he came and interrupted her and killed her. I think that he he's also said that he was a part of it, that they planned it together. Um, he said that she coerced him, forced him into it, or that she messed with his mind because he was on drugs. Um, so there's a lot of different variances to the story, but he holds pretty steady to the story that Dawn was involved. And it's interesting because, um, with the evidence stating that, that it would have been hard to commit alone, it, it makes sense that there would have been an accomplice of some mm. sort, whether it's Dawn or not, or, you know. I mean, we won't. It makes me wonder if he convinced her because she's the one that ended up dead at yeah. the end. So either, you know, she went crazy and he ended up overpowering uh-huh. her, which doesn't seem very likely, or he had convinced her to help him do all of this and then murdered her at the end. Well, uh-huh. one one thing that he always stands by is that there he's admitted in interviews and stuff um, that he killed his parents. But he has always said that he did not kill his brothers and his sister. But he's admitted to killing Dawn. So, and he said that is why he killed Dawn. Because they had a plan. Like, when they had a plan, it was a plan to kill his parents. But then Dawn went on to kill their siblings. And he was so upset that he killed her. You know, and so I honestly don't think that he's capable of feeling any emotion. Well, and, and I'm so not, for I'm him not arguing to be for him, it's just interesting. Upset enough to drive him to murder his sister because he loved his brother and sisters, or you know, 
Well, I mean, obviously he was not a good guy and he had some well, role yeah. in it. But so it's <laughs> and but maybe it was some sort of like he was forcing Don. Mm-hmm. Like he killed his parents, so he was telling the truth when he says he killed his parents. He was forcing Don to kill his other siblings. So technically he's telling the truth in that she was the one who did it. And then he killed her. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she was forcing her to keep them quiet or to keep them from getting out of bed while he was killing his parents or speculation. Or who knows? Maybe he did it all by himself. Or maybe he did it all by himself. I mean, they're little kids. Maybe they froze in their beds. Well, and one of them's in a wheelchair, right? I can't imagine that he would be able to get very far. Very he fast. was in a wheelchair because he was injured um, in football. Oh. And so I think he could walk, but not without crutches. And he had a wheelchair for getting around too. So he wasn't totally like incapacitated, but yeah, well, he but wasn't still, able to. If he to, was injured, yeah. like wasn't able to like walk, let alone. Well, he's a little run. kid too. Yeah, I think he was like the nine-year-old. I well, think. And, oh. you know, you have to think if you're like no. nine, thirteen, and twelve, or whatever he's their ages are. Year old man. Yeah, well, and also like that's your older brother, and like when you're that you trust, young, yeah. like that's somebody that you just look up to trusting, and so. Yeah, he could have gone to their room first them, and said, "Stay here and be quiet," and they could have been like, "Okay, you're my brother. I'll do whatever mm-hmm. you say." Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Didn't even think about that. But we may never know. We'll never know. Probably never know. One story that I want to relay, I think it's kind of interesting, is that he told involving Don was that um, so uh, Butch had an estranged wife, Geraldine, and he was visiting her one day and he got a call from his mother and apparently Don and Ronald Sr. were having an altercation, which was not an unusual thing. And um, they, I, get, I think his mom wanted him to come home. But anyway, Butch hung up the phone, was agitated, said something like, that bitch is at it again. And he and his wife, Geraldine's brother, Richard Romado, left and went to the house and when they arrived, they found Dawn had just killed everybody in the house, so Butch tried to wrestle the gun out of her hands and accidentally shot her. Why I think it's interesting is because one um, site that I read s- said that there's evidence to believe that Richard Romado didn't even exist, so the story is just a complete fabrication. I just think it's interesting to show how far he would go. To, it's just like, we'll never know the truth because he went so far to fabricate so many wild tales that well and it's a great person to throw under the bus because they're never mm-hmm. going to be able to speak for themselves yeah. or tell their own story mm-hmm. you know you just either believe him or you don't which but, there's a lot of reason to not believe him yeah but but what about his wife or estranged wife geraldine she what supposedly did she say? testified that that happened but she also has mafia ties. I don't know. I mean, it's like, is anybody honest in this know? story? Yeah. Well, okay, so we're going to go on a spinoff here. There's a weird, in this book I read, there's this weird thing. And I don't, I didn't research it too far. I don't know how factual this is. But this book stated that his wife, Geraldine, through the mafia, had their marriage certificate completely. To their marriage completely erased. The certificate was completely erased. The event was completely erased. So there is no evidence that she was ever married to Butch. So Weird. then there's this like this conspiracy of when was she married to Butch? Because Butch was trying to use her as an alibi mm-hmm. and she testified for him. And were they truly married at that time? <clears throat> I mean, it's just there's Because so he had many... a girlfriend too at the same yeah, time. Yeah, well, they were estranged. Him and his wife were estranged. Right. So yeah, okay. But it's just, there's so many, just weird, everybody 
fucking lied in this story yeah. and continues to lie throughout the years. It's yeah. just kind of, you'll never know the truth. It's just weird. Well, I don't like never knowing the truth. Yeah. Well, I think Butch get, did it. I'm gonna have to get I think used Butch to that. and Dawn yeah. did it. I think Butch and Dawn did it, and this okay. is why I think Dawn was involved. There are things that make me believe she could have been involved. Um, let's see. She had a history of having a violent temper, just like her father and her brother. She had a deep hatred for her parents. Her boyfriend even testified that she was quoted saying that um, something along the lines that she hated her parents and she wanted to kill them. Um, she would often have altercations with her dad, physical altercations, very similar to the kind Butch would have. She uh, was involved in drugs. She had started using heroin. She started using LSD and mescaline, all things that fuck with your thought processes and your connection to reality. Butch was such a good role model. He was, wasn't he? <laughs> There's even this rumor, and I have nothing to base it on. It was just spread it in one thing. This rumor that Butch and Dawn had an incestuous romantic relationship, too. But There's always rumors There's of incest in any type of family murder <laughs> so one of the most compelling pieces of evidence in my mind was that there was unburned gunpowder found on Don's nightgown that she wore the night that she was murdered which suggests that she fired a weapon and it's the blowback of the gunpowder because if you're on the other end of it it's burned gunpowder mm -hmm. so um that's interesting. I mean, and she was very angry with her parents because her boyfriend was moving and they refused to allow her to go with him. So she was very angry with uh, with this crazy temper and drugs and stuff. So I don't think it's that far-fetched to think that it's something they, Honestly, they planned. Good choice on the parents because she wanted to move to Florida with him. <laughs> good choice, not letting her. Yeah. Can I, wrong choice because they died, but good choice. Florida <laughs> has Harry Potter world, Can but I it didn't in the 1970s. Backtrack really quick, yeah. Because so you had mentioned that when they did the investigation, they were interrogating him. They found like two boxes for two different guns mm -hmm. in his room, and they assumed that the one that he used the 35 caliber was the one that he had used. Did they ever find the second one? The 22 caliber, is that the one that she used? Is there any well, sort there is, of... I kept, I read things saying that, that there was, you know, the suggestion <sighs> that there was two weapons used, but I could never find anything that definitively said there was two weapons used. Like, there's a suspicion that Dawn was shot with a different weapon than the one that shot the family. And so, I mean, there's this idea that both guns had a play in it, but I couldn't find any, like, like anything that definitively said yes there were two guns used you know what i mean so it was interesting but yeah. conspiracy theory did, I, you, did you find anything no all all that i've ever seen was the 35 and like that is definitive like a 35 yes. was used and so i think that any speculation of another gun being used probably came out of people thinking that Don did it afterwards or finding the two boxes. Like well, if yeah, there's there was no... that second empty box. Yeah, but and... if there's no definitive evidence saying that a 25 have... was also used, I'm more prone to believe that just a 35 was used and it's people running wild with... Because there is definitive evidence on the 35. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like so there, is... there should be definitive on the 22 on the 20... if it was yeah. used. Yeah. So not having that evidence means we can presume it was not used. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Unless it was used to threaten and keep the kids quiet in their beds. That's where true. It and it was never fired. Yeah, and, and where did it go? What they never, never found that gun. Where did it go? They what never if there found never that gun. was a gun? What if it was just ammo in a box? 
But it was a box. I don't that know. Was he was like, on heroin. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe that's someone true. tricked him into buying a air quotes gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? But yeah, that guy. They, I never heard that they found that gun though. That's mm-hmm. a good point. I like. I wouldn't have thought of that. So very quickly, um, and then we're going to have a break, uh, but very quickly, I just want to run down some of the weird shit that happened in the trial. We're not going to touch base on it. We're not going to go too deep into it because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened in the trial. But um, let's see, one weird thing that happened. So Butch was forced to take a lawyer by his family, and on this at the second hearing, the lawyer just was a no-show because that happens. So then the judge appointed... Uh, a defense attorney that had only had like one murder trial before this was not really very experienced and was running for some chair or some political seat. So there's a lot of questioning as to how, how and why he got this um, position. And then this is the crazy lawyer that we'll talk about later that caused a lot of trouble. So it's interesting that he even got this, this position to defend um, Butch. And then, um, Let's see. Butch protested for a long time that he did not want to plead insane, that he wasn't insane, but his lawyer pushed him to go for the insanity trial. He did, on the stand, testify that he heard voices, and but I, I wonder how much of that was under coercion, you know, from his lawyer. It's just kind of interesting. Um, let's see. Shortly before the final hearing, the judge that had been on the case the whole time was replaced and a new judge was appointed that uh, was thought to be more suitable to hear the trial, which is illegal. That's illegal. You yeah. can't like a, remove a judge. That's an immediate mistrial. That's, that is flat. It didn't illegal. start the trial over again? No. no. Just well, for well, the final okay. hearing. For the final hearing, he had a different judge. I do not Cool approve. New York. Butch's bloodstained clothes that he swore only had his blood on them were never DNA tested. And one of the detectives on the case that interrogated him to interrogated him was quoted to have said, No, those clothes, those will never be touched again. Why what awesome. <laughs> yeah. Mafia. Just some weird fucking shit. Um and then let's see yeah, I think that's it. That's all the weird shit I have written down right here. There's more weird shit. Anybody interested in it, look it up. There's crazy stuff. Like weird conspiracy just in the trial of this case, which is kind of funny because I still think he's guilty and it doesn't matter, but it's just weird yeah. that all of this stuff is in well, there. Well, it does kind of make you wonder like how much of it is kind of fueled by the mafia because if there is all of this stuff that's happening, mm. like all of this mistrial, like the original lawyer that his family appointed to him, which is no secret they have ties in the mafia, mm-hmm. just didn't show up. And so they had to postpone for however long, you know, yeah. like it makes you wonder well, if everybody's lying and everybody's and, doing all of this stuff, like what deeper level, like what's happening under the surface, you in know? any other area or like scenario where his family didn't have control to some extent over the judicial system in Amityville like that would have been so so many grounds to throw out the case the fact that yeah. he was beaten that he came to court beaten by police officers it's a different time I well but yes it was only but the also 70s. <laughs> we're not talking like no yeah 18th century <laughs> Europe like, and like yes it was a very different time and like the judicial system itself is still pretty fucked up and not cool but yes like had they not had ties in the mafia, well, I don't think any of that would have flown. Oh, no. 
Not at all. And they were a small town. And so you got to wonder how much was just that they were able to be railroaded because they were, or how, how dirty was the town? I mean, mm-hmm. it was, a, it was Long Island, New York. It's just a village in Long Island, New York. So it's not like it's podunk. So very town. dirty. Exactly. So <laughs> who knows? Who knows? So, um, Either way, on November 21st, 1975, Butch was convicted on all six accounts and was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences in prison. He still insists that he didn't kill his siblings. He often blames his sister Dawn for doing it. And to this day, if he's still alive, which I'm not sure if he is or not, his story is continuously changing. Is he still alive, Hannah Banana? I don't know. I watched a documentary from, but it was probably from like, 12 years ago where he was still alive but he was sick so I um, uh-huh. question I should have looked that up before well, we did this well let's google it in the break we can google that give in the break give it a goog <laughs> give it a goog give it a goog that is not a thing people say <laughs> it should be it should give it a goog I feel like honestly I'm stealing that from another podcast and I'm sorry do you remember <laughs> do you remember which uh, podcast I'm okay. talking into the mic, into the mic, into the mic, into the mic. Talking into the mic, into the mic, the mic, into the mic. Talking in the mic, in the mic, in the mic, into the mic, in the mic. Of course, it was recording. Yes, welcome back. The song stylings of the fucked up family. Song stylings of the yes, fucked up family. Indeed, I do want to say on, a story time on our break, <laughs> I googled when DeFeo was, uh, well, if he was still alive, and he is currently sixty-seven, and still alive. I don't know where he's imprisoned right now, but he's living. Probably he's New still York. Changing his story, making up more stories. According to Wikipedia. Well, we know that's true. Yep, everything on <laughs> Wikipedia is everything true. On Wikipedia, everything is true. on the internet is true. It's the internet, and Al Gore invented it, <clears throat> and it's true. That and pants. Al Gore invented pants. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. You want to get to the story? Yeah. yeah. This is the fun part. It would be my favorite part if it was true, but um, we're gonna get to the haunting. December 19th, 1975, the Lutz family moved into 112 Ocean Avenue in the quiet village of Amityville, New York. During their first inspection of the house, the realtor informed the Lutzes of the DeFeo murders and asked if it would affect their decision. After some discussion, they agreed that it wouldn't, and they purchased the house for only $80,000, which was a steal considering the house had five bedrooms, a swimming pool, and its own dock to the canal. George and Kathy Lutz had recently been married in July. Kathy had three children from a previous marriage, Daniel, age nine, not 19, nine, Christopher, age seven, and Melissa, Missy, age five. After hearing about what had happened in the house, a friend suggested the Lutzes get the house blessed. George knew a priest, Father, I don't know, you maybe help me, Picaro, and made arrangements for a blessing. The father arrived at the house on December 18th while the Lutzes were unpacking. He began his blessing. They were outside and had gone into the bedroom that the DeFeo brothers had shared and been murdered in. And uh, at the, when he went into the room, he was accosted by a masculine voice and a swarm of flies telling, and the voice was telling him to get out. As the priest was leaving, he didn't mention any of this to the family. 
Shortly afterwards, he developed blisters on the palms of his hands, similar to stigmata, and became very ill with a high fever. The father called the Lutzes a few days later in an attempt to warn them not to go into that bedroom, but the static on the phone line prevented George from hearing the warning. The haunting began slowly at first, not starting immediately after moving in, but things escalated quickly. The first incident reported involved their dog, Harry, who tried to hang himself on his leash while he was tied up in the yard. Okay, um, well, dogs accidentally hang themselves. Uh, did he try to hang himself? <laughs> he, he had the wherewithal. He knew. He's like, he I'm knew. getting out of this <laughs> shit hole. Also, through that rope over the tree. <laughs> what kind of name is Harry for a dog? <laughs> it's a great name. Where was I anyway? Okay. After that, George began waking up around 3.15 every morning and was strangely compelled to check the boathouse. Later, he would learn that this was the estimated time of the murders. George would also wake up to the sound of the front door slamming. He would race downstairs to find the dog sleeping soundly at the front door. Nobody else heard the sound, although it was loud enough to wake the whole house. At times, George would hear what was described as a marching band tuning up or what sounded like a clock radio playing not quite on frequency. When he went downstairs, a the noise was seized. tuning up. I know, that's very... Out of all of the things and all of the history in the house. We can all be marching bands. Yeah, let's do it. We're going off the rails, man. Off the rails. Okay. <laughs> there was one incident where George tripped over a four-foot-high China lion ornament that was in the living room and found bite marks on one of his ankles. He moved it upstairs, but later the lion would reappear in the living room. Why the f- Wait, does Fuck that whoa. imply that the lion came to life and, and bit, bit him? him. That's it was like the nine-year-old. That's like straight out of the shining. Biting his ankles. Inside the lion. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like you, you, stepdad. (laughs) Who who owns a four foot tall China lion? A China lion ornament. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murder and discovered the order in which they occurred in her dreams and knew went from room to room in her ple- in her dreams definitely not from the realtor that disclosed no, that to them no or she like newspaper days. clippings <laughs> microfiche she, she would also feel the sensation <laughs> of being embraced by the unseen by an unseen force once while in bed Kathy received red welts on her chest seemingly caused by an unseen force i said that already and then she was levitated 2 feet in the air <laughs> the children began sleeping on their stomachs, similar to how the DeFeos were found. Because or how children people never ever sleep on their stomachs. <laughs> Missy <laughs> Missy developed an imaginary friend named Jody, a demonic pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. George reported seeing this creature on Christmas Day. After his routine checking of the boathouse at 3 a.m., he was heading back into the house when he saw Jody in the window of Missy's room. He gets up every night at 3 3 a.m. and checks the boathouse. Because the spirits compel him to do it. He's not. But it's become routine now. Yeah, it's just part of his daily life. Just another routine checking of the boathouse at 3 a.m. Yeah. 
Well, if you do it every day, that's kind of a routine. Maybe now he just Sounds does it like because he likes he's it. He's crazy. Maybe he just gets up in the middle of the night to go smoke a little doobie and in the boathouse. Well, his wife doesn't like him smoking it in the house. That shit stinks, and that's it's fair. illegal back then. So I really love all of the extrapolation here. <laughs> just the wild. <laughs> Obviously, he's going out there to smoke weed. What else would he be doing? Other things that were reported. There were cold spots and odors of perfume or excrement in areas of the house. Or weed. Or or weed. (laughs) The house was plagued by swarms of flies despite the winter weather. And it is noted, this is a funny side note, that Don was a very, like, dirty individual and left, like, dishes and food in her room. And she was up in the attic and she would attract flies. So she often had a fly problem in her room. And I wonder if that was somehow Are you sure? Bell just didn't live in the attic. Get out of here. I was about to throw you under the bus. <laughs> Locks, doors, and windows in the house were damaged by an unseen force. Cloven hoof prints attributed to an enormous pig appeared in the snow outside the house on January 1st of 1976. Wait, attributed to an enormous pig. The demonic pig Jody. With the red glowing eyes, the ghost that they had seen, the demonic ghost with the I know, it's ridiculous. Marks attributed to an enormous pig. So it couldn't be ridiculous. any other large hoofed animal. <laughs> no, because there was a demonic pig known to be living in the house at that point. So it, it just It's assumed. true. It's on the internet. It is. <laughs> Everything on the internet is true. George discovered a small hidden room around four feet by five feet behind shelving in the basement. The walls were painted red and the room did not appear in the blueprints on the house. The room became known as the Red Room. Harry refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. It was only 28 days after moving in that the Lutzes fled their home in fear for their lives, taking only three changes of clothing, I think, Three changes of clothing apiece was very specific. Two is not stated, enough, and four is excessive. And leaving everything else behind. But a month later, on February 13th, 1976, George and Kathy held a press conference sharing their harrowing experiences because all families that are chased out of their home by some unseen paranormal <laughs> force naturally hold a press conference to tell the world their struggles, right? Like They that, need to know about the enormous pig. How that's, do you even call a press conference? I don't Judy. know. That's the thing. Jody. It's so, Jody. That to me is just like the biggest the pile of shit right there. It's like, really? You called a press? I don't know. Anyway. Maybe they're trying to save people's lives. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Gotta watch out for that pig, man. It's Jody. During the press conference, George did most of the talking, but he appeared somewhat reluctant to share his story. He stated that he did not want to get into details, but a very strong force had caused them to leave their home because they had feared for their safety. So that was worth calling a press conference for. I don't want to get into any details (laughs) because they didn't happen. Uh, I don't want to get into details, but there's a big-ass pig, you guys. <laughs> big-ass demonic pig. Well, that's one thing that's funny, is he doesn't ever publicly say any of this. He only one time gives this story, and it's to the author that writes the book that then the movie is based on. So that's the story that they told, and America swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. They became fascinated with the case. People swarmed the house. The... 
the residents afterward had to actually change the address because they were bombarded by so many people and the media and stuff. And they, I think they eventually left the home because of that. No other reason. So it's very, uh, it's ridiculous to me how the media and the people just like took it just like this ridiculous fucking story. And we're like, Oh, but it's true. I, we want to believe in it. We want to have things to believe in. I guess so. I guess so. And demonic pigs is top of my list. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to be famous for being the reason that people believe in scary shit. No, I get it. It's just funny how, how, how famous it became. It is like one of the most well-known haunted house stories in the country. I feel like yeah. people know more about the actual, or like the, the quote haunting than they do about the actual murder that's itself. True. Yeah. No, you're Which right. That's true. Really kind of like overshadows the victims, the, you know, like the well, lives yeah. that were lost. I was telling mom yeah, earlier that the, the haunting itself became so popular that the actual murders kind of became folklore. Mm -hmm. Like people talk about it as if it's just a means to explain the haunting when like that shit is real. Those people actually, actually died. died. But it wasn't that long ago either. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's funny too is the story behind the murders itself is very interesting. There's lies, there's deceit, yeah. there's, you know, that in and of itself, the trial the ties to the mafia, the masses out there have no idea. Do you think that that happens other times, though? Like, the the haunting is a hoax, and no one ever cares about, like, what happened before. It's just this one became really big. This one became really, really huge. But people try to capitalize on this oh, genre, sure. and no one caring about... Like, we, we hear stories all the time about, like, the lady in white because she was killed, but, like, what about that woman? Like, yeah. what was her name? Yeah. What, wh how was she killed? What was her story? And no one cares about that because they're capitalizing on that for the haunting which may or may not be true i think in a lot of those cases where it's like that folklore that urban legend i don't know if anybody knows the true story behind it like some girl mm -hmm. but how would you find like she was not well enough known for there to have been like attention drawn to it and then now how do you find out who she is so then as years go by it's just the legend of the yeah, you know what i mean oh, that's fun but, i like legends oh and stuff. i do too no. you but i agree with you though have to kind of think like if the haunting hadn't gotten such huge attention, would we even be talking about the murder That's a good itself point. right now? You know, like if it did take place in this small town with all of these mafia ties, you know, they'd obviously want to keep that hush. And if it's this true. this George Lutz guy hadn't found a way to capitalize on their murders we would have opened our podcast with a different story, you know? Yeah. Like, so thanks, George. What Thank kind you, George. of Lutz. publicity that, that murder Lutz? itself would have gotten. And then, you know, yeah, like true. within that that's exploration, true. we discovered, you know, like a lot of the nefarious dealings within the court system and stuff. That's and true. Before we end <laughs> the podcast, I do want to touch on some of the reasons that I am so absolutely 100% convinced that everything here is a hoax. Everything at the Amityville house, the horror, the haunting is all a hoax. It's interesting that December 4th, 1975, let's see, they moved into the house December 19th, 1975. Uh, Butch's lawyer, William Weber, sat down with George and Kathleen Lutz 
And over a couple of bottles of wines, they concocted a story about supposed paranormal events that were happening and would happen in the house. They also cooked up the idea that the house was built on an ancient Indian burial ground. Um, one of Weber's intentions was to use the paranormal activity as further defense for his client to hopefully win an appeal on an insanity plea. He hoped that if he could prove that there was a haunting or some sort of force in that house when Butch lived there, it added to his mental illness and the voices in his head told him to do it and he could get off on an insanity plea. So they were trying to prove that the haunting was taking place prior to Butch being there. I mean, I mean, it was a yes. demonic pig. It was not like the boys, but I thought I was under the impression that it was like tied to the people, like tied to the murders, but I they were trying to prove that there was something there before the murders. I think it was, I mean, they never definitively said one way or the other, yeah, but yeah. yeah, that's the impression that I got. They were trying to prove that there was a demonic force in the house that had caused Butch to do this and was still there. And maybe there was paranormal activity because of the murders too, but that was, that was Weber's intention. Um, Weber later teamed up with an author to write a book about the hauntings. It's clear that his motivation was money from the beginning. He even filed a lawsuit against the Lutzes at a later time because I'm not exactly sure what he felt that he was owed by them, but something in the book dealings and stuff, he felt like he was cut out. So he filed a lawsuit. I mean, he was removed from Butch's case to file the appeal because the judge found a conflict of interest. But somehow, I think he was still on the case when the appeal was filed. Um, many of the claims that uh, the Lutzes made have been discounted. They claim they made several calls to the police when they would have activity at the house, and there's no record of any calls to the police. There's no recollection of any calls to the well, police also, from the house. Well, also, what are the police going to do? You're like, my house is haunted. Yeah, Kill that fucking pig. And they're going to come in <laughs> with their guns and try to shoot the ghost. Like, the pig. <laughs> the priest stated that he never visited the house, that he uh, only communicated with the family over the phone, and he also states that he was never sick and he never had blisters on his hands. Um, so that's all bullshit. Uh, George himself has admitted that some of the reports, like the green goo, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, one of the reports was green goo coming out of the keyholes and every door and stuff, and he admitted that that wasn't real, uh, but he holds to the story for some of it. He still says there was paranormal activity that happens there. Um, there was a recent documentary, Daniel, the son, one of the sons of the Lutzes. Uh, it's... It's he, called My Amityville Haunting. You yeah. should all watch it. It's really good. And I didn't watch it. I was going to, but I didn't have time. Um, but I read kind of a synopsis, like an article on it. And I guess Daniel in the interview says that all of the paranormal activity really happened, that it was real. And But then he also says that his dad, his stepdad, George, was abusive and that he dabbled in the occult and that he believed that the demonic entity wasn't there before but that his stepdad called it and, oh but then hannah said that he has later recounted or recanted that well i think b before the documentary he had recounted it but then in the documentary he gets really defensive and anytime that the documentarian the person who made the documentary, <laughs> whatever, whenever <laughs> the person who's interviewing him um, tries to say that he had recounted, he gets like really defensive and like cuts off the interview and is like, if you don't want to believe me, don't talk to me. 
Yeah. So it's weird. One of the other sons says that he believed that there was paranormal activity that happened there, but he thinks a lot of it was exaggerated or was fake. Well, and the other two children have never well the daughter really said anything. Missy, the daughter, won't talk to anybody about it. She's never spoken to anybody publicly about it. So, what whatever she believes, she won't talk to anyone. So, also, side note, Daniel got really close with Elizabeth. Or not Elizabeth. What the fuck is her name? I was going to say Elizabeth Warren. It's Lorraine, Lorraine Warren. Warren. <laughs> <laughs> He's close um, to Elizabeth Warren. Daniel got really close with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And Lorraine Warren is in the documentary for like a brief little moment. Yeah. Well, really interesting because they're also hacks. Yeah, they're also frauds, I, I really believe. Um, and after... Other people have moved into the house. There's been a few different people that have lived there over the years, and nobody has reported any paranormal activity. Nobody has wanted to leave. The one family left because of all of the media and publicity and stuff, but the current owners uh, were quoted saying that they love the house and that they have no reason to move and they want to stay there for as long as they can. Like, <laughs> there's nothing, you know. So, yeah. It's just crap. So anyway, there's my story. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we can move on to our happy thought for the end of the day. The end of the podcast. I have a happy thought. Let me hear your happy thought. Today is September 1st. The day that we're recording the podcast is September 1st, which means it is officially Halloween season. <laughs> At least in my house. I, I know that it. there's Labor Day tomorrow, and some people may not think it's no. Halloween you season should, yet, the but minute, it is. The minute Pumpkin Spice came out, which was last week. Boo. <laughs> it's fall, bitches. Boo. Yay, Halloween. I love Halloween. What's your happy thought, Belle? Well, you got a new job. I did get a new job. And that's pretty cool. Yay, new job. Yay. Yay. Yay you got a happy thought, Hannah? Um, Do you have a happy yeah, thought, so, Jess? Um, my happy thought is this picture I saw on Facebook of a poor little dog who had some sort of surgery and was wearing a plastic cone. But he had a friend, a little kitty, who climbed up in his plastic cone and cuddled with the doggy's <laughs> no. head. That's my happy thought. That's adorable. Aww. My happy Aww. thought is this podcast. I am Aww. happy to be doing this podcast Yay. with my family that I love so much. So Yay. Sometimes. Sometimes. All the time. We always love each other. We just don't always like each other. Yep. True. <laughs> so. I don't ever like any of you. Go bad. away. Liar, liar. That's not true. But she loves all of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, it's been fun. Till next time. I don't yeah. Know. Goodbye. Bye. Signing off. Bye. Adios. Arrivederci. Farewell. Danny, bye, Gigi. Auf Wiedersehen.